0: Would please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46 Isaiah 46 Last week we started the first couple of verses And really chapter 46 and 47 go together If you were to title these two chapters I think chapter 46 would probably be titled something like The Idols of Babylon or Babylon's Idols and then when you get to 47, Isaiah is dealing with Babylon itself and, it, and he's talking about Babylon's destruction. And so we'll reread the first seven verses and kind of talk about what's in those verses. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 46, it says, Bel boweth down, Nebo stupeth. Their idols were upon beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden; they are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into tap- captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are borne by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age, I am he, And even to hoary hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and I will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire the goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder, they carry him, and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place he shall not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. And so, last week we covered the fact that the idols have to be carried. That's the main focus of these first few verses in Isaiah is you make these idols. They even mention Babylon's most prominent gods, which was Bel and Nebo, and these two gods have to be carried through the festivals. Uh, Cyrus even honored them, but again, they basically are being carried. And then the last point on this slide talks about the fact there's no distinction between the gods and creation. If you look at it, if you were to read any mythology, the gods are almost human-like in character, flawed character, Um, whereas Jehovah, the one true God, is high above all of that. And when we think of him, we shouldn't think of him in terms of what we're like, but rather we ought to think of him in purest terms of majesty and moral character, which we don't possess. And so these gods are that way. When you blur the distinction between these gods and people, what you find is creation itself becomes deified. And so, that's how this chapter starts out, is focusing on these gods. And then it moves to Jehovah, and look at the difference. Jehovah has carried Israel. In verses 3 and 4, he mentions Israel by name. He says, Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. And by the way, Wednesday night, if you were here, if you remember in the psalmist, as he was going, as Pastor Aaron was going through that psalm, he talks about Jacob and Israel. That is a pattern that I had noticed, and um, it was kind of interesting. Someone asked Pastor Aaron about that, and he felt it was tied to poetry, which he may be, you know, correct on that. I had always kind of thought of it in terms of Israel's formation to its finality. Because if you think about it, Jacob, was known as a scoundrel, and so you could think of it from the lowest, or the most, uh, or the least godly of the Israelites to the most. Um, but the Bible didn't tell us why. But it's mentioned in Isaiah a lot, and the Psalmist also did that, where he calls out the nation by Jacob's original name, and then his more honorable princely name of of Israel. And so that's what is here. But the main point is regardless of why both those names are there, is God has carried them. And last week we covered the fact that uh, there's the poem called Footprints. And a lot of you nodded your head. You remembered that. Well, that one's a perfect poem to kind of highlight the fact that God Has been taking care of Israel of Jacob and he's the one that carries them unlike the idols you see a big contrast here the idols are carried by a beast of burden or by people Jehovah needs no one to carry him but rather he's the one doing the carrying and so that gets us from the first few verses to verse 5 Verse five asks a series of questions. What are the questions that we see in verse five? Yes, ma'am. Okay, the first one is, who do you consider Jehovah to be like? What a foolish comparison. I mean, the, the difference between the idols and Jehovah is the difference like night and day. Uh, There's no comparison. What else does he say in this verse as far as the comparisons? Say it again. Okay, there's definitely a conclusion that's coming that there's no one like Jehovah. There's no one else. There's only one true God. But there's another question or two before we get to that conclusion. But. That is the bottom line. There's no one like Jehovah. Lynette. This is a little off the subject, but when he starts out and he talks about the idols are like cattle, or you know, the beast of burden. Uh huh. Talks about his horse being carried by Jehovah. Right. Mm-hmm. Of going to God, to carry them. Absolutely, they look at the idols, and they make a lot of them like a beast of burden that would carry them, but the idol can't. But Jehovah does. Nancy, I see your hand. I see a golden idol in here. You see a golden one, huh? Okay. It looks like. And there's a silver one too. Okay, but before you get to what the idols are made of. There's the next question, who's Jehovah's equal? Can you think of any of the gods? And, And I met someone yesterday that had been in Singapore. And if you go not too far around Singapore, and I was only there once for a weekend, you will find all of these ornate temples. And on these ornate temples are all these figures, and they're all different God. They have all these multiple idols that they call their gods. And each one is for a different reason. But is any one of those an equal to Jehovah? No. Nothing. nothing that compares to Jehovah. And then the last question is who will you compare Jehovah to? He basically says that we may be like. There is nothing. There is no idol, no God that is like Jehovah. He is totally separate and different. And that's what Isaiah has been trying to get across really from chapter 40 to here. This is kind of concluding it or bringing it to a closure where he says, okay, Babylon's going. And part of the reason I believe he did this is Babylon is eventually going to conquer Israel. And if you remember, the pagan ideology of pagan deities and things is if I pick a fight with you and I win the fight, my God's bigger than your God. My God's better than your God. And so here, Babylon's gods are singled out. Babylon is going to conquer Israel. They're going to be defeated. And he's basically saying... That's not the reason. In fact, he'll get to the reason in a little bit. Now, we also have, again, the fact that these idols are being described. When you look at verses five through seven, what can you tell me about the vanity of idols as far as what's been described? And this is repeating what he said in other chapters. Okay, first thing that he brings up, they're made out of gold and silver. So here's these precious metals in our eyes, and they're being used to make these idols. But I I like what some pastors have said down through the years. He said, what we value here on earth will be how they make streets up in heaven. He talks about the streets of gold and things like that. But they make idols out of this. So they give their precious metals to the idol maker, and he puts them on, on the wood that's shaped like they want. What else do we know about these idols from this passage? Have to carry them around. Okay, they have to carry around, but in between that and this one is they worship an image made by man. In fact, a lot of these... Idols we find take on characteristics of either animals or man, but they're things that we see in creation that man has just copied. And so people worship the image of creation that is made by men, and then like Brenda said, the idols are carried around by people, so they can't move on their own. That's not true of Jehovah. And Jehovah doesn't necessarily move the way we move, but he is far more powerful, and he transcends time. He is not constrained by time like we are. What else does it say about these idols? Linda? Okay. And before we talk about the one that Linda brought up, and she's spot on, the idols are put in a place they can't move which i kind of hinted at before before we got to that part but if you look at the verse says from his place shall he not remove he can't move on his own and then like linda brought up people cry to the idol but he can't answer the idols can't save people from catastrophe and so they go into battle, they basically have this mental idea that if I win, my God's bigger than your God, my God's more powerful than yours. They may cry to the God, the, their idol, during the heat of battle, but the truth of the matter is that idol is gonna do nothing to save them from catastrophe. And so that's how Isaiah starts all of this. Brother Bill. The
1: idols also can't make you successful.
0: That's true. They can't make you successful, but that's what people think they will do. And so, you know, we're looking at the negative side. Bill brings up the positive side. They pray to these idols thinking that as they do that, these idols will make them prosperous and successful. And so that being the case, Isaiah turns his attention to the people in verse 8. Let's read verse 8 through 13. And this gets to the point that's already been made, and that is Jehovah is God and there is none else. Verse 8 says, Remember this and show yourselves, men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it. I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And so there's a big change when we get to verses 8 through 15. The first thing that I want you to notice is in verse eight, there's a phrase in the King James that says, O ye transgressors. Other translations use the word rebel. And so I liked rebel. And so the rebels are admonished in this verse, actually these two verses, eight and nine. What is God's admonishment through Isaiah to these rebels? Okay, I Am God is definitely at the heart of it. Bobby, did they steal your thunder or did you have something else? Okay. Okay, the first thing that's mentioned is the word word remember this. Remember this. Now I thought it was interesting, one of the commentaries pointed out that Those that look at this verse aren't sure if the this is referring to what's already been said or what's about to be said. But the point, I think, is legitimate either way. God's saying to them, in effect, remember me, remember what I am capable of. Don't just think about these idols, remember Jehovah. And then he says to them that they're to show themselves men. Effectively, the idea is, is, hey, stand firm. At least know what you believe and stand for it. And so the rebels are admonished in those areas. And then I thought this was kind of interesting. Look at the middle of verse eight. You have, remember this, then show yourselves men, and then says, bring it again to mind. One of the things that we may not realize because hopefully none of us are actively engaged in any kind of idol worship but I got the impression that idol worship from this causes the mind to be dull causes our senses and sensitivity to what Jehovah is doing to be dulled Um, we can allow worldliness and things around us uh, which include a lot of idol worship things to dull our sensitivity to the things of God Um, and so while we probably don't like to admit it if we really searched our heart in each of us we would probably say there's some rebel in me there's some parts of me that aren't necessarily aligning to what God wants because I have some rebelliousness in me. Now that's not a good thing. That's not something that I'm saying proudly. I'm saying it because that's the reality of our heart. And if you remember when Saul offered offerings um, and he was confronted by Samuel he said rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And the idea is, is rebellion that rebel part of us is aligning us to paganism and things that are satanic. Linda, thank you for waiting. Um, so, thank you for going. I shouldn't have raised my hand. Oh, that's all right. Because you answered what I was going to say. Uh, okay. When I get to fill in with rebel, I remind myself that it's the devil that's doing that to me. There is definitely a scriptural basis for us realizing that our rebelliousness is something that is not of God; that it's of Satan. Yes, ma'am. I'm not saying it's for anyone
1: else, but I noticed
0: television does that. That dullness. Yep. In fact, uh, jokingly, I I heard someone that we all know say to someone else we all know, you know, that they were worshiping their idol when they were watching a particular sport on TV. And he was just teasing, but the idea is, is, you know, the more we take in of this world, the more we may be allowing our senses to be dulled concerning God. And I don't say that to point out any one of us because I think all of us can relate to it. I think all of us can find, if it's not television, something else that can dull our senses to what God's doing. And then the last thing they brings up is remember the former things of old. And if you think about this for a moment, if you're specifically isolating this to Israel, they have the Pentateuch. They can look at Genesis and they can see creation. They can look at Abraham, the patriarch before Jacob. They can look at Israel's history from the time of um, Jacob slash Israel, through the judges, through the time of Moses. They can look at all those things. And all through that, you see Jehovah taking care of them. You see them going into Egypt, and they were about 70 persons at the most. And here's this big nation that God uses to shelter them and protect them until they come out And so all of that, he's saying, remember the former things of old, and then he gets to the key point. This is the central point that he keeps coming back to. Jehovah is God, only he just simply says, I am God, because he's quoting, thus saith the Lord, I am God, there is none else. Jehovah is God, there is none else. When we look at our Bible, We should see Jesus the Messiah as one with God the Father. Both could go by the title of Jehovah, and there's no one else. We worship God as a trinity, which can definitely cause us to get a headache if we try and understand that. We just have to accept it by faith. We are not polytheistic. We don't believe in multiple gods like the idols where there's multiple gods. But the point that Isaiah is bringing Israel to and that he's brought us to is the fact that there's no other God. There is no equal to Jehovah. He is transcendent. He is different than all of the idols. But yet in our heart and mind, That's what we tend to focus on. Now, at this point, he's going to focus on some things that Jehovah is doing, specifically concerning Israel. I kind of like putting these verses up. If you look at these verses, I've underlined three words. They all end with I-N-G. They're all declaring a type of action. The first one is the word declaring and then the word saying and then the word calling so what is God declaring in this verse and this is not new this is what Isaiah has been saying over and over again what is he declaring he's the one, in control. <laughs> he's the one that's in control he's definitely saying that but he's also declaring something very specific there it's kind of the wording of it's, to me, almost a little in cryptic um, because we don't word it that way. What's the first phrase? The end from the beginning. What is he trying to say there? Creation to the end of time. Eternity. Already- okay, you can, you can look at it that way. I looked at it a little different, but it's the same basic idea. Um, you all have hit on the key thing there, and that is God can tell you right from the start what's gonna happen at the end. From creation, he can tell us how it's all going to end. Uh, When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the Iwana races. The kids get all excited about that. they put up four cars. And when they put the four cars on there, probably none of us can say which car is going to win when they release them and all four of them go down together. Um, now if we weigh them we can get an idea but we have to get more information god doesn't something as trivial as that he could just look and tell you car number two is going to be the one that wins he'll know he's not constrained by time and that brings us to the second thing in here says from ancient times the things that are not done what does that mean okay from history in the past god knows what is going to happen in the future and if you remember throughout all of the stuff that isaiah has been saying really from about chapter 41 he keeps coming back to the fact The idols cannot tell you what's gonna happen. The idols don't know the future. And so here he says, God's declaring from the end, the beginning. So he knows what's going to happen at the end, even before it starts. And he knows from history, even before history, the ancient times, he knows what's gonna happen in the future. Then he gets to the saying. What is God saying here in verse 10? Okay. That's one way to do it, to say it, is he's going to do what he pleases when he wants. Um, If you look at this, his counsel is going to stand. So his word, what he has given us, what he's told us, it's not going to to pass away, it's gonna stand. But also, in fact, I like the word purpose. I will do my purposes better than my pleasure because we associate pleasure with something else. And some of the translations do use the word purpose there. And so God is saying that His counsel is gonna stand and He will do what He purposes, which then brings us to the third ing word, calling. What is God doing? He is calling what? What's happening here? Okay, he's calling Cyrus, and that's true. The second half of the phrase gives you the, the big hint. He says, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Basically, Cyrus is going to come and he's gonna execute God's word. But what's this ravenous bird? Okay, it's just another description of Cyrus. And we would probably today use the phrase, you know, someone that's like a bird of prey, more so in a ravenous bird. I mean, when you talk about ravenous bird, I think of a vulture. And it's like, eh, you know, but really what God is highlighting here through Isaiah is Cyrus is going to be like a bird of prey. He's going to be like a hawk. He's going to come in, he's going to strike quickly, and there's no hope for what's on the other end of that bird of prey's focus. When he comes down, he's going to conquer as a bird of prey conquers its prey. And so what we've just covered is God's declaring how things will end from the start, the future from ancient history, And one of the things I think is important for us to continually remember is God chooses to work within time, but he's never constrained or subservient to time. God is saying some things. His first thing he's saying is what his word says, his counsel, it's going to stand. And secondly, what he purposes to do, he's going to do. Um, Many of us might make a promise, and because of circumstances we may not be able to keep that promise that's not true with god when he makes a promise you can be assured that promise is going to happen and then the last thing was the calling he's calling a bird of prey from the east which is cyrus and the man from a far country that's describing cyrus also and cyrus is going to do god's will um, I always like referencing Proverbs 21:1, because in that that proverb, God says that the king's heart is in his hand, and he turneth it as the waters whithersoever he wills. And so, what we have in our heart, if God can change a king's heart, you think He can change mine? Absolutely. There is none of us that God can't squeeze our heart and change our heart as He chooses. And so that's His. what He's declaring, what He's saying, what He's calling. That brings us to accept some logical conclusions, and you'll see those in verse 12, actually uh, verse 11, the end of verse 11. Isaiah is bringing up some conclusions. There's the phrase, "yea," And what are those conclusions? I'll give you the first part of it. First one is God has spoken. What's the logical conclusion to God has spoken? Okay, so God has spoken, and like Linda has given the details, but in general terms, what it basically the conclusion that we should be accepting is if God said it, God's going to make it happen. There should be no doubt in our mind. Now, if you want to test our faith, just kind of in your mind, think if you could go back to 1947. What is different between 1947 and 1948? Israel became a nation. nation. I don't know what pastors did then. I wasn't born yet, Um, but I was getting close. And when you think about it, some taught the idea that America was the lost tribe of Israel. It's called replacement theology where the United States replaces Israel. Now, the fact Israel exists as a nation today probably presents a little problem for those that subscribe to that ideas, but those weren't what God said. God said Israel is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's his chosen people, and he's promised to protect them didn't say he was going to make a new nation. And so we have Israel coming back into existence as a nation. But those that struggled with that had a problem with, I don't see what God said he's going to do happening. We get the blessing that we do today. Brother Dalton, thank you for waiting.
1: walk out of God. so even today, today I believe we still have people that worshiping these idol gods that cannot hear if they have to move you have to move them from one place to the other. Where God of heaven is the God that carries in the scripture from the moon all the way up to God. We we don't think we can even do nothing. And today days it's so sad. I don't know if they have closed their minds to the gospel. That is does not want to hear and stop this. You know, I don't know why. People turn to these guys that cannot help. Because you cry out to them.
0: Brother Dalton brings up really a sad story where he met a woman that had a special room in her house, and they wouldn't you know wouldn't let people go in there because that's where her God was, her idol. Interestingly enough, if you think about it, Some might attribute to Jehovah the idea that he's in a box. What box would that be? He made the box. He made the box. Okay. You're taking it a little bit too figuratively. But the box that some might say Jehovah is constrained by is the Ark of the Covenant. But the truth is is God doesn't exist in that Ark of the Covenant. That's where... The Ten Commandments and various artifacts were kept, but not God. And so I appreciate Brother Dalton bringing that up because we think, oh, this might be historical paganism. But man's heart is still the same today. When we reject the one true God, Jehovah, there is none else, then the alternative is turning to idols. And man's depravity and what he'll do, in some ways, sometimes it surprises me, but it shouldn't because it's no different than what it ever was. When we rebel against God, and we turn to idols, there isn't hardly anything that mankind won't do. And so here... The logical conclusion when we get back to this is the idols are really vanity. Jehovah is the one true God, and when he speaks, you can be assured it's going to happen. Just like we mentioned of Israel from 1947 to 1948 and and to now, God made it happen. The other thing is, is God has some purposes. What happens concerning God's Purposes. If he purposed it, he's going to do it. Okay, if he purposes it, he's going to do what he purposed. It's not like, well, I had this thought, eh, that's too hard, I'll change it. No, it doesn't work that way. We work that way, but God doesn't. So what he thinks or purposes, he's going to make it come about. What he says, we can pretty much take him at his word and know that he's going to bring it about. Now, sometimes we have a little bit of trouble with that. And the reason is, is we like to see with our eyes what's going to happen. And really that kind of ties to what he's gonna cover in the next chapter, but we're gonna quickly finish this chapter. Verses 12 and 13. The highlight of that is that God can and will deliver his people. That's been Isaiah's thrust. He keeps telling Israel, he says, trust God, trust God, trust God. And then he says, the idols are vanity. And then he comes back and he says, trust God. He's told us he's going to save us. He'll deliver us. So trust God. And so this starts off kind of addressing those, I think, that are not trusting God. What does he call them? Stubborn. Stout-hearted. What does that mean? Okay, stubborn. That's the word we're used to. He says, there are stubborn people that that are far from righteousness and they're told to listen. And so, first of all, earlier, you could have easily used the word rebels. Hey, you rebels, pay attention here. Now he says, okay, you stubborn people that are far from God's righteousness, listen up. There is hope for you. But you got to listen, you got to pay attention, and you have to believe God's Word. Um, my daughter and I, in particular, are a little bit on the stubborn side, but we like to look at in the positive. We say, well, we're determined. Well, that's good if you're focused on the right things and doing the right things, but the truth of the matter is is all of us have probably a little bit of a stubborn streak, but I think German heritage is even more so that way. And I'll admit, I have some German blood in my veins, and so there's some stubbornness there. And I'm not particularly proud of it, but they're told to listen. And then what are they told about concerning Isaiah's message? Okay. One is that God's righteousness is close, but then right after that, God's salvation will not be delayed. And then what else are we told about God's salvation? Okay, it's going to be placed in Zion or in Jerusalem. I think that is extremely significant. What city are we talking about in this chapter that has the two idols? Babylon. Babylon. In contrast to Babylon, we have Jerusalem. I've heard, and I know there's a book title called A Tale of Two Cities. Well, in the Bible, I think there's also a tale of two cities. You can go back to the Tower of Babel And I think that is some of the roots of Babylon. And what you find is you have a city of man, and you have Jerusalem, the city of God. And the two have been going at one another for millennia, several millennia. And so here it basically highlights the fact that God's salvation is going to be centered in Jerusalem, or Zion. Where was Messiah crucified? Just outside the city. When we want to look to God for salvation, we basically are looking to what He did just outside of Jerusalem. Bill, you had your hand up.
1: Yeah, is this, He says, I will place salvation in Zion. Is that in the new city of Zion, uh, Jerusalem? Or is that what we consider now the city
0: of Jerusalem? I think it's both, personally. Both. Okay, I think so. Because I think until the, the new city is that way, I think we look back in history to the cross, which is where God basically redeemed mankind through His only begotten Son. But when we get to New Jerusalem the light of New Jerusalem is going to be Messiah. So I think both are true uh, concerning that. And partially, I believe that because Jesus is at the center of both places. And the other thing on it is when it comes to splitting hairs, I don't have enough hair to split. Okay, and so I look at it and I feel like you know, God wants us to look to Jerusalem for what Messiah did and what Messiah will do, um, and that's that's just how I personally understand it and see it. You know, Linda, I up, Simon, and what I found was that Zion is a place in Jerusalem that's uh, considered a refuge mm-hmm. for those who believe whenever there's problems. yeah And I think that's the idea that God wants us to look at, is that Zion is a place of refuge where God protects. And we sing songs that that kind of hint at that, along that idea. So if you look at chapter 46, which we pretty much have went through today, the focus was mainly on contrasting the one true God, Versus Babylon's idols. That's going to get us to chapter 47. And in chapter 47, what we see is Babylon humiliated. Um, We'll just read just a couple of verses um, to kind of introduce it. And then next week we'll pick up in 47. It says, come down. I'm in verse 1 of chapter 47. It says, come down. And sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. And so if you look at this, God is basically... highlighting what's going to happen to Babylon. Babylon, when they conquered Israel, was under Nebuchadnezzar. And rightfully so, they probably, with their pagan thought, were thinking quite highly of themselves when they defeated Israel. They were probably thinking something along the lines of our God's bigger than your God. And Isaiah here is saying, things are going to change for you, Babylon. It says, come down and sit in the dust. Is that a common greeting when someone comes to our house? okay not exactly in fact uh, it was kind of funny on Friday uh, there were a number of young men and then myself that were helping brother Nathan with some of the decorations and brother brother Bob came by and he was teasing me a little bit he said boy some people do anything to be able to sit down but he caught me sitting on the ground doing some of the wiring stuff and he was, he was teasing me about it. Well, there's no joke in what Isaiah is saying. The idea is that, in fact, if you look a little further, he says there is no throne. And so in verse one, he highlights the fact that Babylon's gonna be humiliated and shamed They're basically going to be told to sit on the ground because they don't have a throne. And so unlike my situation where it was easier to reach by sitting on the ground, there was a reason, but I'll agree with Bob, I like the idea of sitting down instead of standing up doing all that work. Um, That's not what's going on with Babylon. Here they're being shamed. Nancy. Definitely there was sackcloth and ashes that they would put on as m- mourning. Um, not really sure how much the sitting, I, I know it says he sat you know, in the dust, clothed with sackcloth and ashes. There's a good chance it's tied together. I just had never thought about connecting the two. But yeah, that's a good observation. The other thing that I think is important to realize is nakedness and we didn't cover this but verse 3 says thy nakedness shall be uncovered yea thy shame shall be seen the reality is is nakedness and shame are often tied together in the bible prior to the fall says they were naked and they were probably clothed in the shekinah glory of god would be my guess but afterward from that point on nakedness is usually tied to shame and so Babylon is going to be viewed as being humiliated and brought to shame. I'm going to leave you with this question, we'll open with this next week. What is the difference between humility and humiliated? Think about it, we'll talk about next week when we pick up with Babylon and they're being humiliated and shamed. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that as we read your word, we know we can trust it. We know that what you purpose and what you say you will bring to pass. Father, we thank you for the redemption that you planned and you brought to pass concerning redeeming mankind through your only begotten Son. And so as we go into this worship service, Father, we just pray that we would exalt Christ highly, that we would honor him and be thankful to him for what he's done to bring us peace with you. Father, as we study in Isaiah, help us to appreciate more and more, not only your power, but your love and your work in our life and your provision for not only your chosen people, but for your church. Pray for Pastor Aaron. We pray that you would put the message on his heart, that you would have him share with us today as a congregation. May it draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.